Welcome everybody back to Straight Up No Chaser. Getting some hard truths about recovery and today we're going to talk about treatment centers. Treatment centers are the perfect example of what John Rockefeller told the AA founders when they were asking him for a handout. He considered what they were doing and he was really moved and amazed by what they were doing and the results they produced. However, he didn't give them the money that they wanted. He gave Bill and Bob a stipend of about $5,000 a piece, but that was it. His reasoning was money would ruin this movement. And he understood money. Money tends to create bureaucracies and bureaucracies tend to lose their purpose and replace it with the purpose of maintaining the bureaucracy above all else. And that's what we have with the treatment industry, the industrial treatment complex. Billions upon billions of dollars are spent on treatment and the results are less than spectacular. They're pretty bad, to be honest with you. Uh, when I was in treatment, I am a product of treatment centers. Uh, when I went to treatment, uh, it introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was the best thing it did for me. But I had some good counselors there. They were alcoholics. They were addicts in recovery. And uh, we really respected them because they were living it. But they were honest with us. And one of the things that stuck in my mind was when they said one out of 13 of you will make it. That's the standard. Only one out of 13. It just so happened there were 13 of us in this group. And I looked around at the rest of the fellas and I said, I feel sorry for you guys. And today, I am the one. I don't know whatever became of the other 12. But at any rate, <clears throat> that treatment center gave me a start. However, so many people pin their hopes on treatment. We hear it in the general public, you know, they're going to treatment. You know, you need treatment for your addiction. You, know, you need treatment for your alcoholism or whatever uh, uh, problem you have. But treatment is just a start. The best thing they do is they detox you and point you in the direction of the solution. Treatment is not the solution but very often they build themselves as such. And treatment over the years has changed. They're getting into a whole new phase where they're abandoning the 12 step um, solution and offering a variety of solutions. Uh, now they speak of a alcohol disorder or opioid disorder or whatever, it's, it's not addiction, it's not alcoholism, it's a disorder. They are playing the politically correct game. They don't want to 
lower your self-esteem by labeling you as an addict or an alcoholic. And uh, I'm afraid to tell you that addiction, alcoholism, they don't play by the rules of political correctness. I uh, spent 33 days in treatment. I went to two of them. The first one I went to, uh, it was more of a psychiatric hospital. And that was an interesting story in and of itself. I was at the end of a seven-day cocaine binge. And uh, I knew that I was dying with every line I did, line of coke I did. I, I started telling myself, this shit is killing me. I have to stop. This is the last line. This went on for 12 hours. I had a lot. And the last six hours, I had to use the bathroom. Finally, nature won out. I was able to get up from the table and I went to the bathroom and I, when I looked in the mirror, I saw someone I didn't recognize I figured someone had broken into my house and I prepared to fight. I drew back to hit them and they drew back to hit me. And then it dawned on me that that was my reflection in the mirror. I didn't recognize myself. For seven days, I did nothing but cocaine. I, I solved my drinking problem. I didn't even drink and uh, I, I didn't eat food. I, 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 I'm not sure if I even drank water. It was just a straight cocaine diet for a whole week. So that's where I took steps one, two, and three. I hit my knees. God help me because I can't. And I went. I somehow called a treatment center. I do not remember this call. However, I remember very vividly their call to me at 6.30 telling me I had missed my 6 o'clock appointment. And I was wondering what appointment are they talking about? And while I'm talking to them on the phone, their commercial comes on TV. So I figured it out. This was the DEA. They were coming to arrest me. So I went to them first so I could talk them out of it. And I had a spiritual awakening. You may think it impossible to do so under the influence of cocaine. Maybe I was deluded from seven days of being up doing cocaine. But when I went there, I had a lie in my head to tell them, but the truth stopped pouring out of my mouth. I was shocked at the things I was telling them. And the lady told me that I needed inpatient treatment. And I said, okay, I'll be back Monday. She said, well, no, you need to be here now. And I said, I can't. It's Friday. And she said, well, if you leave here, you'll die before Monday. So my thinking was the DEA wasn't interested in arresting me. They were going to kill me. As soon as I walked out, there would be a red dot on my chest, and that would be the last thing that I ever saw. So I stayed there. And uh, they didn't do much for me other than detox me. I desperately needed that. I may have been very close to death. 
And when the insurance company got a wind of where I was at, they told me I checked into the wrong treatment center. I'm not one who asks for help very often, and this was devastating. You know, one of the very few times I ever asked for help, and I screwed it up. So I went home, and uh, it took 26 hours to get to the proper treatment center in between. I discovered some things about myself. I wasn't going to touch the cocaine, but it would be okay to drink some beer, and it would be okay to smoke some pot, and it led me back to the cocaine. So uh, my last night out, the police were there. They came. They had me cornered. I've never been arrested for drug use. I've been pulled over six times drunk and never arrested, never got out of the car. I've always got out of it whenever the police were involved, and this time was no different. The first cop out of the car was Scott, and I said, Scott, what are you doing here? He said, Jerry, is that you? I said, yes, it is, and he said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it, and the police went away. A few hours later, I walk up into treatment and uh, begin this journey, so they detoxed me for a long time, but uh, when I left that treatment center, there were some miraculous things happening, irregardless of what they were doing. I had a couple more spiritual awakenings there. One, I wanted to kill my sister for stealing the dope, but I prayed instead, and a peace came over me and took away the anger and that peace remains at the center of my being even today. And that's when I started my prayer life. Uh, that's when I started going to AA, NA, and uh, determined that I was going to do this thing. And they also gave me a psychiatric exam. That was good. And they read it in group. That was even better. Because out of the 13, I was the only one who did that. That was my first unofficial fifth step. But I left that treatment center convinced that I had to live the AA way of life. But I also felt that I needed to go back to that treatment center for support. And what happened was I ended up working with a lot of the patients there, just talking to them. One, one, one addict carrying the message to another. I didn't have much of a message, but I was a demonstration that you could stay sober. And this went on for two and a half years, and, and, and it got to the point where a lot of people thought I worked there because I was there so frequently. Uh, I also uh, volunteered to work in the gift shop. That was a tremendous benefit. Um, one of the peculiarities about me was whenever I smoked marijuana, I became a voracious reader. And when I worked in the gift shop, I was in the midst of the best uh, recovery library in the state of Indiana. And I read pretty much everything. And that's when I start reading a lot about AA's history and noting that there's something different about AA today and AA then. And uh, that sort of piqued my interest. So I learned a lot from uh, 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 Dr. Bob and the good old timers and Bill W. pass it on and AA 
comes of age and language of the heart and earnest cares, not God. I mean, it was just, a, I just became a voracious reader about this alcoholism, this addiction thing that had me. And uh, I uh, uh, really appreciate what the treatment center did for me. But as time went on, things changed. The, 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 just like with alcohol and with drugs, the script flipped. And uh, I started to carry the AA message into the treatment center. They allowed me to lead a big book study with the adolescents there. And uh, at first I was disappointed because, you know, teenagers being teenagers, they kind of blow you off. But after a while, I realized they were listening to me. They just couldn't let their friends know they were listening to me. And they would pull me off to the side and talk to me and ask me to be their sponsor. But one of the things that really, really struck me was they asked why they weren't learning this in treatment. Because I'm taking them through the book. And they had been told that they could not recover. Teenagers didn't recover. I explained to them what it said in the big book of those who came to AA and really tried, meaning worked the steps, 50% got sober at once. Another 50% sobered up after some relapses. All of a sudden, these kids who the treatment center deemed beyond recovery because they hadn't been through enough pain yet started getting sober and started recovering because they were exposed to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, this troubled the treatment center staff because they were, I was able to do what they could not and they were being paid to do it. They were just following the narrative they were given to give to the kids to keep them coming back, you know? And, and when the treatment center says keep coming back, they mean keep coming back until your money runs out and then they won't have anything to do with you. And, and I've seen so many alcoholics and addicts crushed when they found out that fact. You know, you kind of fall in love with your treatment center and and uh, because so many wonderful things happen and, and it's a place where you accept it. But if you rely upon the treatment center, Eventually, you reach a point where you can't come back, you know, because you don't have the money. So these kids, you know, they started recovering. And uh, one day they came in and, and it was a very defiant lot. They changed frequently about once every three weeks. But they came in and asked me, why are you reading to us out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous when, when we, we're drug addicts. And I said, okay, I'm a drug addict too. I'm an alcoholic as well. But let me ask you this. Do you like your drugs pure or do you like them cut and stepped on? And they were like, well, you know, I, I like it to be pure. I said, well, the big book is pure recovery. Every other book is stepped on and cut. And what they tend to cut out 
is the God part. So you make up your mind if you want to continue with this or not. And they all agreed they wanted to continue. And eventually the powers that be saw to it that I would be put out of there. They cut me out. You know, I couldn't go back there for whatever reason. I think it was because I was successful. Uh, I ran into this again at one of the local psych wards. Uh, I used to go there every weekend and, and talk to the patients, do my presentation, bring the, introduce them to the big book. And one Saturday afternoon, I walked in and I walked in on a drug deal being arranged by these two guys when they get out. And they manipulated the staff there to kick me out. They had a patient's bill of rights. And since I made them feel uncomfortable with what I was telling them, speaking about God, then the psych ward determined that I could not come back to that facility, even though a, a great number of addicts and alcoholics had come through there, heard a, a message, went on to recover. So that that's my experience with treatment, and it, it goes even further. I also went into prisons and did step workshops, you know. So I had a friend who worked at the women's prison, and she thought that uh, I would be perfect for the inmates who are on the waiting list to get into chemical dependency treatment. And I agreed. And the first time I was there, it was a woman, and she looked at me like she was looking at a ghost. And she said she had been praying and asked God to send someone to help her. She desperately wanted to, wanted to recover. And the first class, she said, you're the answer to that prayer. I've been asking God for somebody like you. I, I've studied religion and all this, but I'm not feeling God's presence. I felt it today. So I was able to help her and other women in that facility over a period of two years. But something happened. They stopped signing up for chemical dependency and start signing up for the workshop I was doing. This created a problem. And I knew the day the warden came down to visit that my run was just about over. Prior to that, some of the counselors in the uh, 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 treatment unit came and sat in and challenged me and I just kind of broke it down in, in a way they could understand and related to what they were doing. But uh, they felt threatened because what I was doing for free and accomplishing, they weren't able to accomplish for money. And uh, they saw to it that I was barred from the facility. So all of that goes to prove the point of what Rockefeller said. Money will screw this thing up. The bureaucracy will create a self-preservation dynamic where its only goal or its primary goal 
is self-preservation. And that's where AA differs tremendously from that with our traditions. Our self-preservation is based on giving away what had been so freely given to us. And today, uh, the treatment center message dominates the rooms of, of recovery. Um, in AA, when I first went, they had abandoned the AA message. They had abandoned the big book. But they were very open to what the treatment centers were selling because a majority of the alcoholics and the addicts came from treatment centers. So they would take what they learned in treatment as newcomers and make it rhyme and make it sound good and people would repeat it. You know, like a drug is a drug is a drug is a drug. Like I said, I've tried many drugs and that is not true. That is not true. But that's what the treatment center told them. So the AA message where it reintroduced and were we able to reproduce the success rate that the founders had. 75, 85, 95%. Half the treatment centers in the country were closed. So we who carry this message, we are a threat to those who profit off of the troubles of the addict and the alcoholic. You know, um, some people are shocked to hear those success rates that I just quoted. But if you ask Bill Wilson, he always said that the success rate of AA was 67%. Why did he say that? Of the first 100, the first, the founders, 67 died sober, never drank again. Uh, the Cleveland AAs, they uh, broke off from the Akron group because they were Catholic. And the Akron AAs, they weren't AA yet, they met with the Oxford group. Well, the Oxford group was Methodist. So the Archdiocese in Cleveland told them, if you keep going down there and giving your confession to those Methodists, we're going to excommunicate you. Well, they thought about it and said, hey, I didn't get sober just to go to hell. So they had the big book. They went and started their own meeting, the first true Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. The Barton Group still meets in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, in one year, they sobered up 400 alcoholics and only had 16 relapses. Even Bill did not believe this. Bob, Dr. Bob did not believe it. It took them four years to sober up 100 alcoholics. So Clarence Snyder, who led this miracle in, in Cleveland, uh, he and Bill didn't get along, and but Bill went up there and he saw it working, you know, uh, it was newcomers sponsoring newcomers. If you went through the steps, you were an old timer. They were overwhelmed with requests for help. So they mass produced recovery. Clarence Snyder would have been seen as a founder had he and Bill got along better. But he called, he believed Bill was just a shyster, you know, and that may have been true. But uh, th th that success rate was tremendous 
And if we could duplicate it again today, so many lives would be saved. However, the key is they went into the steps immediately. They didn't do 90 and 90 because there weren't 90 meetings. They had to build the fellowship first and that put the program first. So two key components of that is ego deflation. It was talked about by William James in his book, Variety of Religious Experiences. That's the book that Ebby Thatcher gave Bill to help him understand what had happened to him. And what William James found out, he studied all these cases throughout history where these people had sudden spiritual conversions. And he found the common thread was a deflation of ego at death. Some problem had them absolutely defeated to the point they were beyond human aid, and it was at that point they became willing to allow God in, to enter their lives, and he did miraculously. The other uh, uh, ego-deflating example came from Dr. Harry Tebow. He became a big fan of AA when one of his patients got sober in AA. He had been trying for years to get her sober, so he went there to AA, and he studied us, and he noted some peculiarities we had, like we're childish, emotionally sensitive, grandiose, and we have a special kind of ego. Uh, we could go through something that would psychologically and emotionally devastate another person, but we bounce back in a couple of days as though nothing ever happened. That's very beneficial when you consider the hell that alcoholism and addiction had in store for us. The downside of that is this. Once the alcoholic ego reestablishes, you cannot convince the addict and the alcoholic of the need for change. So when we lock up or go away to treatment for 30 days or whatever, two weeks as it is today, whatever it is, we've missed that point that turning point. Uh, by the time we get the alcoholic, the addict from the treatment center, it's not that bad. And they've lost that gift of desperation that alcohol and drugs gives us. See, so we have to let go and let alcohol prepare the alcoholic. We have to let go and let drugs prepare the drug addict for the change necessary to recover, that gift of desperation that brings the key of willingness into their life. But when your focus is making sure they're comfortable and making sure that they are well fed and healthy, then there, there's no desperation. And if there's no desperation, you can't work the steps. You won't change the way you live. And that's when relapse happens over and over again. And that's when the recovery rates go down. So that's the straight up no chaser story about treatment based on my experience. And I'm sure there are many other people who study this book and live this way of life who can back that up.
you know, over 30 years, over 28 years, treatment centers have changed. They are not 12-step focused. They are trying other remedies. I had a alcoholic I was helping and they were on opioid blockers so that they wouldn't get the pleasure from drinking. And I'm like, it's not the pleasure of drinking that leads us to drink. See, this is the conclusion that someone observing the alcoholic from the outside in would make. That's what treatment centers do. But in AA, we know alcoholism from the inside out. We know addiction from the inside out. We know at the end, it's really not about pleasure, but escaping the impending sense of doom, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair that sobriety brings. Sobriety is our problem. Alcohol and drugs is our solution to that problem. This is what the treatment centers do not understand. So they send alcoholics and addicts into the rooms of recovery with the misguided focus that because they didn't pick up today, they've got just as much recovery as the guy who's got 20 years. I ain't never bought into that. I was looking at the guys with 20 years, at least the ones who were happy, and I wanted what they had, and I was willing to do what they did to get it. Because I had quit drinking for periods of time. I had quit doing drugs for periods of time. It was a miserable affair. I wanted to know how do you do this uh, sober life and be happy. Treatment centers don't deliver on that. AA delivers on that. The 12 steps deliver on that. So that's the uh, straight up, no chaser, uncut, hardcore truth about treatment. It's just a beginning. The best thing they can do for you is give you the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and point you to the Alcoholics Anonymous rooms. You know? So, I'm going to end this episode on that note. This is episode two. Uh, this app has a whole lot of music and stuff and bells and whistles. I don't even bother. I'm like, this is straight up no chaser. I just start talking talk in my car on the way home from work and I empty my mind based on my experience strength and hope with the steps with God with recovery and the fellowship of the spirit that is found in all 12-step fellowships by those who work this program by those who live the steps <laughs>